So sharing together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving neighbor. That's the mission of Redeemer Fellowship. And the reason why it's our mission is because that statement captures the essence of our Christian faith. The story of Jesus is one that is both eternal and spiritual, but it's also a story that takes place in time and history. It's the story of his birth, his simple yet profound life, his tragic but sacrificially loving death, and his victorious resurrection and ascension. And it's a story, this is the best part about it, that we're invited to participate in or share in by faith. Now, why do I bring all that up? Well, this morning we'll be looking at a psalm that shines a light on that very story. And when we look at it carefully, we'll notice that the story captured for us in Psalm 110 is the very story we are invited into, a story which we are called to offer ourselves freely to. I love this psalm because in it, we see the cooperative work of all three members of the Trinity, and it's a story and a party that we are invited into. It's a really cool passage of Scripture. I spent a lot of time just wrestling with it all week because there's so much there. Honestly, there's enough there to keep us here for a few hours, but we're not going to do that because, honestly... That would just, that just wouldn't work. But anyway, let's take a look. A couple things before we jump into our text. A little bit of context. This is a psalm of David. We know that from the superscript, and we all know what superscripts are now, right? Those little words at the beginning of a psalm. We all know that now. We're well-versed in those things. And, it's, and we also know that because Jesus tells us that in both Matthew 22 and Mark chapter 12. This psalm is in the fifth and final book of the Psalter, which means that it's being used to help tell the story of God establishing his new creation. If you want to learn more about the story of the Psalter, I preached a sermon on that a number of years back that I'll throw in the email this week that just shows how the book of Psalms really is the story of David, the story of Israel, which is the story of Jesus, which ultimately is our story. And so I would encourage you to give that a listen. And finally... The cool thing about this psalm is that the New Testament quotes or alludes to this passage more than any other passage in the Old Testament. More than any other passage in the Old Testament. All that to say, this is an important passage. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 110, or you could follow along in your bulletin or behind me on the screen. So as I said, this is a psalm of David. So these words are coming from his lips. But as I've talked about before, there's more than one David presented to us in the Old Testament. There's the literal David, the guy who killed Goliath, who was anointed king and who sadly used his position as king to have his way with Bathsheba. But then there's the idea of David or the ideal Israelite, the place where the story of David was always heading. And in between these two figures is the history of God's people. A history that is marked by unfaithfulness and exile. And it's in the midst of this exile, while living under foreign kings, that Israel is reminded of the faithfulness of their covenant-keeping God. So it says this, The Lord says to my Lord, The psalmist is listening in on a conversation that is taking place between Yahweh, 
Now remember, every time we see Lord with all capital letters, that is a translation of the covenant name of God. So this conversation is taking place between Yahweh and some other Lord or master, a figure that is of higher authority than King David. And we know that because the psalmist says, my Lord or my master. David is saying, my Lord, my master. So we know that this figure is of a higher authority. Now, something you're going to notice as we work through this psalm is that there's two people speaking. The psalmist or the prophet, who is David, and Yahweh, and the individual they are speaking to or about is this other Lord or master. Now, to zoom out a bit, we know who this other Lord or master is. We're not going to wait for this surprise ending at the end. Matthew 22 and Mark 12 tell us that the person that David is prophetically referring to is the Son of God, Jesus who is also described in the Gospels as the son of David. That means that this psalm is about Jesus, about his royal and priestly roles as Messiah. But, and this is where it gets really cool, it's also about us. This psalm is also about us. Why? Because the story of Israel becomes the story of Jesus which is the very story we, as Jesus' followers, participate in or share in by faith. And so the story of God, the story of Jesus, is the story of his people. It's our story. It's our story. And we talk about that regularly here. We talk about union with Christ. We talk about communion with God. And all of that is meant to articulate this beautiful truth that our stories, should we bend our knee to God in faith, are wrapped up and caught up in this beautiful story of redemption. And that story of redemption has a name, and his name is Jesus. Let's keep reading. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So in these two verses, we hear the voice of Yahweh and the voice of the psalmist. Yahweh says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We could spend the entire morning right here. This is passage that is quoted in the New Testament at various times. But the point that I want us to understand this morning is that Yahweh, what he's doing here, he's handing over or sharing his authority with this other Lord. The language here is really cool because the word for says is is not the typical word that is used in the Hebrew Bible. Old Testament scholar Bruce Walke makes the point that what Yahweh is doing is prophesying. The Lord prophesies to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now that makes sense because there's no way David would have fully understood what he was writing. Nor would the Israelites living in exile have fully understood what they were reading. This conversation speaks of things that haven't happened yet. But while David and his readers might not understand what's going on, they do understand hope. They do understand hope, and that's what this psalm is about. There is a coming day when the enemies of Israel will be piled up under the feet of the one who is seated on the everlasting throne of David. That's what a footstool is. It's the part of the throne where the king places his feet. And the readers of this passage would have understand, understood what this meant. In the ancient Near East, kings would place the heads of their enemies under the footstool of their thrones as a sign of victory. Now, that's a wild scene, right? Like, but that's, that's what happened in the ancient Near East. The ancient Near East was a wild time, 
okay? We think like we're living in crazy times. The ancient Near East was nuts, right? They would, they would put heads under the feet of kings. Why? To show that they conquered those particular people. Now, what I love about this passage, take a look. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Who's the one placing the enemies under the feet? It's Yahweh. Yahweh is the one placing those enemies under the feet of Jesus. Now, to step aside from the text for just a minute, we're a little technical this morning, so, so just follow me, track with me. And so to step aside from the text for a minute and to lean into the fact that Jesus' story becomes our story by faith, there's something so beautiful, so encouraging about God being the one who fights on our behalf. Right, just picture that for a minute. Whatever it is that you're going through, whatever pain you're walking in, the battle really does belong to the Lord. Like that's not just some trite verse that we, we read and, and, and maybe like crochet on a pillow. I actually don't know if you crochet on a pillow, right? Like that's not how crochet works, right? You know, needlepoint, am I getting it right, right? Right, it means more than that. It's actually a really true statement that God fights on our behalf. It's why Paul tells us in his letter to the Ephesians that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And that verse in Ephesians, it shows up right in the middle of the armor of God passage. And the encouragement in that passage, is to be strong in the Lord. To be strong in the Lord. So, so the Bible never says, like, yo, buck up. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says be strong in the Lord. All of our strength, all of our courage, every bit of might that we have, it's found in Christ. It's found in the story of the crucified king. Like, that's where our power is found. And it's part of this larger section in Ephesians that begins in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul tells us to be imitators of God as beloved children and to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. In other words, God fights on our behalf as we participate in the battle through these spirit-filled lives of sacrificial love for others. And check this out. What happened before the Father told Jesus to sit at his right hand? He gave himself up for us. He gave himself up for us. You guys track what's going on here? Yahweh says to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Right? Yahweh says, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to take care of dealing with your enemies. But what did Jesus do right before he rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father? He sacrificed himself in love, which means that if we are to live as Christ lived, if we are to, to, to embody the story of Jesus, that means we fight battles the way Jesus fought battles. Right? And Jesus fought battles, how? By dying, by sacrificially giving of himself for the sake of those he loved. Man, that's wild, right? Like, so, so 
so what that means is as we live our lives, and we're going to go into this a little bit more deeply throughout the rest of the sermon, as we live our lives and we see the mess that is our world, guess what? Like, those aren't our enemies. Why? Because the Bible says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, which means that all the people that we think of when enemy comes to mind, all the, all the whatever, maybe political figures or whatever you might think of when enemy comes to mind, no. The Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Our enemies are spiritual. So that means our war is spiritual. Let's keep going. Right, because I'm getting ahead of myself, and I'm going to talk more about that in a little bit, and I'm going to give away the rest of my sermon, and that's not going to be good. Now, I believe there's two ways to read this psalm. First, it's the story of Jesus' coronation, the day he became king. If you're into Frozen, you know what coronation day is. And as we travel through the passage, the psalmist paints a picture of the way in which Jesus rules and reigns from the right hand of the Father until the day when new creation is fully realized on earth as it is in heaven. So in other words, this is the story of the book of Revelation compacted into seven verses. The second way to read this psalm is retrospectively, as he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, he's reflecting on his earthly ministry how he was sent by the Father from Mount Zion into creation, how his rule and reign began as he preached the kingdom of God, where? In the midst of his enemies. And I believe we are called to hold both of these readings together in tension, that what David is prophesying about is both the first and second advents of Jesus, the first and second comings of Christ. And the reason why I believe that to be the case is because the story of Jesus, his spiritual birth, His life, his death, and resurrection is our story. It is our story. So it happened in history, and it's happening every single day a person gives their life to Christ. You you track that? It happened in history when Jesus entered into creation, lived his earthly ministry, died upon a cross, and it happens in all of our lives when the Holy Spirit breathes new life into us. We are... are, We are born again, and we live this life of sacrificial love and service to God, and then we die, and then we're raised. So this is a both-and story. You guys tracking with me? A little complicated, but I hope we're tracking. Let's keep going. Check out what it says in verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. And then he commands this, this Lord or master, rule in the midst of your enemies. Yahweh sent the Son. But when he came to his own, his own did not receive him. Remember that story? And not only did his own not receive him, but he was crucified under Pontius Pilate on a Roman cross. Nobody liked this guy. Jew and and Gentile alike, nobody liked this guy. And so we see him throughout the Gospels ruling in the midst of his enemies. Ruling in the midst of his enemies. Now his rule and reign... It's not the sort of rule and reign we're used to. And it wasn't what the people of his day were used to either. Jesus ruled by giving of himself, by identifying with the outcast, by breaking through social barriers, and ultimately by dying. And and not only did he live this way, but in his kingdom manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount, it's how he teaches us to live. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus says in the book of John. 
as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Which means, if we're to understand how the Father sent Jesus, we got to read his stories. And what do we learn about how the Father sent Jesus? Oh, he sent him humbly. He sent him in, 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 in rags, right? He sent him in scandal. He sent him in, in pain and, and, and filth and muck and mire. That's how he sent the Son. And so Jesus says, that's how I'm sending you. And you know what's great? He still rules in the midst of his enemies. Let's do a little thought exercise for a moment. Imagine you're an Israelite. You're living in exile. So, so to give a little, little brief, brief history, the, the, the book of Psalms was most likely compiled and brought together this collection of, of poems and prayers was most likely brought together during the exile, when the people were outside of the land. And so they're reading this prayer book while they're nowhere near their temple, nowhere near the place where they worship. They're outside of the land, right? And, and actually, some scholars refer to, to the book of Psalms, Psalms as this traveling temple. It's this way of entering into the presence of God without being in the temple. And so imagine you're, you're an Israelite living in exile, cast out of your land, under the thumb of foreign leaders, away from the temple where you were taught to worship. You're with your fellow countrymen. You're singing through the Psalms. And then you get to this verse about a king ruling in the midst of his enemies. What's going through your head? Do words like this inspire hope? Or is the cultural moment being experienced making it difficult to believe? Now, truth be told, this shouldn't take all that much imagination. In fact, the New Testament calls the people of God, the church, exiles. Right? So, so that story, we've adopted that through Christ. And, 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 and the reality is, is we too are living under the thumb of foreign leaders in exile. And I'm not talking about Joe Biden, and I'm not talking about Donald Trump, or any other political figure that might come into your mind, or any other figure that might come into your mind, political or not. I'm talking about the prince of the power of the air, the powers and authorities, the evil one. Remember, our battle is spiritual. Our battle is spiritual. But there's good news. Jesus rules in the midst of his enemies. Jesus rules in the midst of his enemies. Jesus is king. He is Lord, regardless of who is sitting in the Oval Office or on our school boards. I was listening to a podcast this week. One theologian made the point that American Christians are some of the only Christians who believe that we have a divine right to political power and influence. That most Christians throughout the world and throughout church history simply accepted that they were on the margins of society and that their voice really didn't carry that much weight. But regardless of where we stand in the societal or political hierarchy, the truth is, and, and this is something me and Scott Daly talk about often, the truth is, is that there is nothing that can prevent us from imitating God and walking in love. There's nothing. There's little, but what about if they take away our rights to assemble? 
Well, what about if, if Christianity becomes illegal? Well, what about if, if I'm told I can't pray in public? Well, what about, like, let's like fill in the blank. What about you can still be imitators of God and walk in love and proclaim the kingdom of God? There might be consequences to that, but you could still do it. Why? Because Jesus rules in the midst of his enemies. Jesus rules in the midst of his enemies. And how do we live these lives, right? We do that by sharing together in the life of Christ, by loving God and loving neighbor. And, and check this out, right? Because this rule and reign that Jesus has, that he possesses, that he, that he secured through his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, he gives it to us. We rule and reign on behalf of God, right? The Bible calls us ambassadors, right? Representatives of God here on earth. Vice regents is the technical term. Like we are kings and queens ruling on behalf of God in the midst of God's enemies. And how do we do that? By loving our neighbor. By loving our neighbor by proclaiming good news, by walking in humility, by caring for the needs of the broken and the oppressed, by, by maintaining holiness and righteousness in the lives we live, by cultivating our lives with God. We do not do that by embodying the cultural air we breathe around us. Man, we gotta fight that, right? Because it's so tempting and I've said this before, to pick up the tools of the enemy and fight for God. It's so tempting to do that. But everywhere in the scriptures, it calls us out of this world. You are in the world, but what? Not of the world. That means we shouldn't look like the way in which the world battles. Something different needs to be said about us. And so we need to ask ourselves the same question we posed to those ancient Israelites. Do words like this inspire hope? Or is the cultural moment we're experiencing making it difficult to believe? we got to wrestle with that question. And if it's the latter, and for many of us it might be, and, and that can change on any given day, right? Then the problem probably rests in our understanding of what it means to rule and reign of what it means to rule and reign. Because ruling and reigning in the kingdom of God looks like death, which is wild, right? It's that upside-down kingdom stuff. It's the stuff that looks completely different from how the world is structured. The passage now shifts its gaze for a minute from the king and shines a light on his people. Look at, look at verse 3 with me. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Now, this verse has stumped translators throughout the course of church history. Like, it's super complex, and there's a lot of strange things going on linguistically. We're not going to get into all that because that's probably going to bore most of us. But there are some hints that help us understand what's going on here. First thing is that the people of God, those who belong to the king, they offer themselves freely. Another way to put this is, 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 is the language is described as a free will offering. A free will offering. The language also suggests a holy war. A holy war. 
In fact, a lot of the language in this psalm allude to this idea of holy war. And so what's happening here is that, that what, what is being called is that, let me, let, me, let me rephrase that. In other words, your people will enlist themselves into your, into your ranks as a free will offering. Right? That's what the psalmist is saying to this king. Your people will enlist themselves into your ranks, into your army, as a free will offering. In fact, that's how Israelite warfare worked. If you go back into the law in Deuteronomy, people weren't forced to join the army. They weren't forced to fight. In fact, there's plenty of reasons why someone ought not to fight. Right? You just got married? No, no, no. You're not going to fight in the war. Go hang out with your wife. You just bought a piece of property? No, no, no. You're not going to fight. Go enjoy your home. You just planted a vineyard? No, no, no. You're not going to fight. Go enjoy the wine. Right? And then, and then, and then, what's ever left, you're scared? No, no, no. You're not going to fight. Go home. You don't have to do it. Because honestly, if you're scared, you're going to make everyone else scared. Right? And so basically, what God is saying in this text is those of us who enlist in this army, those of us who enlist in this, 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 this army of the saints, we give ourselves freely to the cause. We give ourselves freely to the cause. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner, he draws our attention to Romans 12.1 where the Apostle Paul urges the church by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Right? That's, that's the New Testament equivalent to what's going on here. Presenting ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, holy and pleasing to God. And they do this when? On the day of his power. What does that mean? Right? Well, before we try to figure out exactly what that means, we have to remember the sort of power that God operates with. First, one of the best ways I saw to read and understand what's going on here is to see this as pointing to the events of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out onto the church. In Luke's gospel, Jesus instructs his disciples to stay in the city, right? This is after he rose from the dead and, and before his ascension. He's instructing his disciples, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Same word. And then he tells them in Acts 1.8 that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Again, the same word. But the day of his power is also the day when Jesus spread his arms out upon a cross. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Wait, what? The cross is the power of God? Wait, death, bloody mess, sacrifice? Again, right, that goes against every single definition of power that we uh, have been, been exposed to as, as human beings living on this earth. Power in the kingdom of God looks like death. I want to I read to you something. I'm clearly excited about this passage. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts with the Beatitudes. And, and it says this, and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, this is Matthew 5, if you want to jump there. If not, don't worry about it. You can listen. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for so your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now Luke picks up on, this, on these Beatitudes, but he, he says them a little bit differently because Luke was a doctor and he focused a lot on the physical body. He says this in the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are you who are poor, not poor in spirit, just blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, not those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, just blessed are you who are hungry. You shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. The point I'm making, why does Jesus call these people blessed? Because there is a power in a life that is marked by and shaped by the cross. There is a power in this life that is marked and shaped by the cross. That's why Jesus calls them blessed. You, you tracking with that? The day of God's power, when he poured out his Holy Spirit, when he filled the church and empowered us for ministry, what that means is he empowered us to live lives of poverty yet still expressing joy because our salvation resides in Christ, right? Like, that's wild, and it goes against everything the world teaches us. This is such good news. This is such good news, and we have to wrestle with this. We have to wrestle with this because it's what the Bible teaches. It's what the Bible teaches. It's the shape of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Remember, I've said this on multiple times. We're not only forgiven by the cross, but we're formed by the cross. And so that means we have to give of our lives freely for the sake of others. We have to love as Christ loved. We have to be sent in the same way Jesus was sent. It's remarkable. That's remarkable. And, and this is why... The world looks at the sort of thing that we do and they say, that's folly. That's dumb. That's dumb. But we're going to see why it's not. We're going to see because, because the reality is, and we have to catch this, right? Like, we're not going to get all the reward today. It is true. It's more blessed to give than to receive. That's true. It's 100% true, and we've all experienced it. We know that when we give of ourselves for the sake of others, man, oh, that, 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 that feels good, right? It feels good. But there is a greater reward. But the reason why it feels good, and I've talked about this before, is because the world was created in such a way that to ride the wave of creation, to actually swim with the current of how this world has been set up, is to be one who gives of themselves. Right? And then Paul shows us how that works out in, in, in different relationships, right? Like he, he talks about mutual submission in Ephesians chapter 5. And then he talks about how mutual submission works itself out in the relationship between husband and wife. 
He talks about how mutual submission works itself out in the lives of of slaves and masters, which was a wild thing in the first century. He talks about how mutual submission works itself out in the lives of, of parents and children. Again, that's a challenge for us. Like, wait, what, I'm supposed to submit to my kid? Yeah, kinda, right? How does that work? Well, I listen to them, I engage with them, I don't just fly off the handle and lose my my temper with them, right? I'm still the authority figure in the relationship, but what does authority look like? Well, I don't know, look to Jesus. What does authority look like? It looks like someone on a cross. And so that has to shape every single bit of what we do, and that's what it means to rule with power in the midst of our enemies, What sort of power does God operate with? It's cross-shaped power. And so this free will offering that we give to God, this army of saints that outnumbers the morning dew, this holy war that we are fighting in, it's a war in which we are called to pick up the same weapons Jesus used himself, weapons of love, mercy, holiness, humility, and ultimately death. After his resurrection, Jesus said to his disciples, peace be with you. Just as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Another way to think about this or put it, hey, do you remember what my ministry looked like? Do you remember when you saw me speaking to that Samaritan woman? Remember when I healed those lepers by touching them with my own hands? What about that time I was with the Pharisees and and that prostitute came in and I forgave her sins? Or when I stooped down to wash all of your feet? That's the stuff I want you to keep doing. And you know what? I'm going to give you the power to do it. But all the other stuff, like beating down the enemies of God, my father's going to take care of that. In fact, he's building my footstool as we speak. Your job is to do what I did, and that means loving those who are broken to the point of death and then standing against those who try to condemn them, right? Like, let's not pretend this means we're just pushovers, right? Who did Jesus, you know, go to, you know, Go to blows with, right? The Pharisees. Why? Because they were coming against the broken, the poor, the weak, the wounded. They were snuffing out that smoldering wick. And Jesus is like, absolutely not. And so, yeah, that is our role. To rule and reign as Christ did. When we see people coming against the weak ones, the poor ones, the broken ones, we stand up on their behalf. We do it humbly, but we stand up on their behalf, especially in the household of the faith, right? May it never be in this place that the broken are cast off to the side, that the smoldering wicks are snuffed out. May that never be in this place because that is when we have to just welcome the hammer of God. It has to be because, man, that just goes so against everything that the kingdom is about. We want to be a place where where we welcome the broken, where where they find healing here in Christ. That's that's my desire for this place. And I think that's reflected in the way I preach. Like That's got to be what matters to us, that this space, this people of God, is a people who receives whoever walks through those doors. And we care for them. We bind up their wounds. We enter into their mess. We care. We just go deep with people and and, and do that hard work. That has to be what we're about. And that's the holy war that God has called us to fight in.
That's the war, guys. It's not a political battle. It's not yelling at people on social media. It's definitely not that. It's really not. Don't do it. It's not that stuff. I'm not saying that we should retreat from all sort of governmental sort of thing. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that is not what we need to be known for. That's not the flag we fly. The passage now shifts its attention back to the king. Now, what's so fascinating about this psalm is how how the psalmist is speaking. Notice how he's relating information to us as readers, but he's also speaking directly to the king, assuring him of who he is, his role as king, and as we'll see in these final verses, his role as priest. The way I imagine this is like, I I almost imagine if, if Jesus, you know, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, like maybe he had this psalm on his mind. Like maybe that's what was going through his head, and maybe he was finding comfort as he was in his moment of doubt, he, he was looking to be like, no, no, you know what? Like, I am, I am the guy spoken of in Psalm 110. I am that guy, and I'm going to continue walking in that reality. Verse 4 goes like this. The Lord, or Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Yahweh made a promise, a promise that he will not go back on. And that's my point, right? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he hears those words. My father swore to me, and he's not going to change his mind. I am a priest in the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? That promise is that the king who rules in the midst of his enemies, who gathers willing servants to himself to serve in his kingdom, he's also a priest. But he's not just any priest, he's a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. A little bit of background on Melchizedek, and we do not have time to go into depth on Melchizedek. We just don't have the time, right? But a couple of things. Back in Genesis 14, we're introduced to this guy named Melchizedek. He was king of Salem, which is Jerusalem, and he shows up after Abraham rescues Lot. He feeds Abraham, and the text describes him as a priest of the Most High God. His name actually means king of righteousness. What is significant about him is that he belongs to an order of priests that precedes the Levitical priesthood and and Aaron. This was a group of priests who served in the temple. That's not who Melchizedek is. He's different. He came before all of that stuff. Why is that important? Well, Melchizedek is both a king and a priest, and the reason why that's significant is because the original readers of this psalm, while they were sitting in exile under the thumb of foreign rulers, they had no king. They had no priesthood. They had no temple. So a king priest, the son of God the Father, he would be able to answer all of their needs. That's what's so cool about this for the original readers. And again, this is a word of hope to a people living in darkness. And it's a word of hope to us because as we talked about earlier, we too are living in exile under the thumb of a foreign ruler. And so we too need a priest and a king. Now, the book of Hebrews talks about this Melchizedekian priesthood. And to summarize what the writer of the book of Hebrews says in chapter 7 about Melchizedek 
is that this story is about Jesus. Right? That's a very simple summary. And, and when we have some time, we'll dig a little bit deeper into that. This story is about Jesus, about how his priestly work of sacrificing himself on the, on the cross atoned for our sin once and for all. That's what's significant. The priests that came before Jesus, their sacrifices, they really didn't work that well. Like, at most, they, they, they satisfied God for a year, right? But something happens in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is a different sort of priest. In, in the Old Testament, the, the Levitical priests, not only did they sacrifice on behalf of the sins of Israel, they had to sacrifice on behalf of their own sins as well, right? So they were broken priests, like from jump. Jesus enters into the Holy of Holies, the heavenly temple, and, and, he, and he sprinkles his blood on the mercy seat. And his blood doesn't have any stain, any wrinkle. There is no blemish in the perfect spotless lamb of God, which means that his sacrifice is once and for all. And he is a priest forever. What does that mean? Well, he's interceding for us, right? What does that mean? Jesus is praying for us, right? He's going to the Father on our behalf. Every minute of the day. Guys, right there, like that's enough, right? That's like Jesus died for our sins, we're free, and he's got our back every minute of the day. Talking to the Father, saying like, no, yeah, yeah, like I'm praying for Seski, I'm praying for Mark, or I'm praying for Brian and Holly, right? Like, like, oh, you know, Father, help out, you know, Emily, right? Like he's doing this stuff. That's how personal it is. That's how personal it is. That's how beautiful this thing called the Christian faith is. That Jesus is in the heavenly places praying for us. And, 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 and the reason why God won't change his mind is because the sort of sacrifice that was performed by this priest, this Melchizedekian priest, it was perfect. It was complete. And this makes Jesus a priest forever. And it's why the Father fights alongside him at his right hand. It's why he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Why he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. Why he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And why he, when he grows weary, he'll grab a drink from the brook along the way. And then the last verse, what does it say? He will lift up his head. Right? That's a victory chant. That's a victory chant. He lifts up his head in victory. Right? We, we, saw, we see this a little bit, right, on the cross when Jesus lifts up his head and he says, into your hands I commit my spirit, right? right? It is finished, he says. On the cross, right, the, the death nail was, was slammed right into the heart of death. And then he rose again saying, my death, it worked. It worked. Your sins really are forgiven. Because the tomb is truly empty. He's a priest and he's a king. It's the best sort of king you can have. One who has your back personally. Right? How many other kings can you waltz into the throne room and have a chat with? Right? Jesus is that king. Why? Because he's a priest. Man, that's such good news. That's such good news. It's, and, and what's really interesting, it's, 
in these final verses, the pronouns start to conflate a little bit. Who's shattering kings? Who's executing judgment? Who's drinking from the brook and lifting up his head? Is it Yahweh? Is it the king? And the answer is a resounding yes. It's both end. And all the while, as this cosmic and spiritual war is raging, the way we are called to participate, to engage, is through the weapons forged for us by our forerunner, Jesus. Jesus prayed. He quietly cultivated a life and relationship with the Father. He rested and retreated so that he might be filled up with the fullness of God. He meditated on the scriptures day and night. He loved and forgave relentlessly in both word and deed. He moved toward the broken. He was holy and righteous. And he stood stood against those who judged and condemned sinners because he didn't come to judge and condemn, but to save the lost. These are the weapons of the kingdom. These are the weapons of the kingdom. This is what it means to rule in the midst of our enemies, to rule in the midst of God's enemies. And in the same way the Father invited his son to sit at his right hand after his work was completed, this psalm invites us to rest in the promise of God that our priest king rules and intercedes on our behalf forever. That the promises of God are irrevocable and that the battle belongs to the Lord. His story becomes our story by faith. And we live in light of that story by receiving the forgiveness secured for us through the cross, and freely offering our lives to God as we are sent just as Jesus was so that the world might catch a glimpse of what God is like. That's that's the story. That's good news. That's good news. And it's also an enormous challenge for us. What does it mean to pick up the, 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 the weapons of the kingdom versus the weapons of the enemy? What does that look like in my daily life? What does that look like as I relate to my spouse, as I relate to my kids? What does that look like, right, for those of you who are teachers and you're about to enter into another year? What does that look like as you relate to your, to your administration, to your students? What does it look like to our students in the room who have to relate to their teachers to pick up the weapons of the kingdom versus the weapons of the enemy? We got to wrestle with this stuff. Because the beauty is when we live those lives marked by the cross, it's going to call attention to ourselves. And people are going to be, you know, they're going to ask, like, what's that all about? And then you give a reason for the hope that's within you. All right? Like, that's what it is. That's such good news. It's such good news. I love, I love this psalm. I'm sure there's more to it that we could wrestle with for the next hour or six, but we don't have time for that. But my hope is that as you walk away this morning, my hope is that the one truth you walk away with is what it looks like to rule in the midst of our enemies is to embody the ideals of the kingdom of heaven to be shaped and formed by the cross of Jesus. That's what it means to rule and reign in the way Jesus rules and reigns, who is seated at the right hand of the Father and is coming again in glory. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, Lord, we, we love you and we really thank you for this story. Um, because if, if you ruled and reigned in any other way, we would all be condemned to death, Lord God. Um, but Lord, you entered into our story. You took on flesh. You lived a perfect life of holiness, love, mercy, compassion, and grace. You died on a cross, and you were raised again three days later, and you are reigning now at your Father's right hand, and we are so grateful for the sort of king and priest you are. God, I pray for anyone in this room who really needs to hear that this morning, who needs to know that you are interceding, praying for them as we speak, Lord God. And Father, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, Lord God, that doesn't know the, the hope of the resurrection, that today would be the day of salvation, I beg that of you, Father. God, we love you with all of our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.